Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In any given mental disorder, there are biological factors at play, there are social factors at play, and there are psychological factors at play. And that the psychology and the biology are really two different ways of looking at the same phenomenon. Hello, I'm Dallas Campbell, and welcome to the show. Welcome to Patented. It's a podcast all about the history of inventions. And this week is Mental Health Awareness Week. So I thought I'd do a special episode all about mental health and particularly about the invention and the development of antidepressants. And one antidepressant particularly, an antidepressant that really took the world by storm in the 1990s, and that is Prozac. And it's a story that speaks to a much greater shift in psychiatry and attitudes generally towards mental health since the invention of the very first antidepressants way back in the 1950s. I'm going to look at how depression and mental health were treated before drugs, the types of antidepressants that have come along since the 1950s, and why Prozac particularly was so revolutionary and popular, and what the future might hold. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Mark Ruffalo. He is a psychotherapist who runs a private practice in Tampa, in Florida, and he teaches widely about the history and the culture of psychiatry. Enjoy the show. Okay, we have Dr. Mark Ruffalo joining the show today. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I've been really, really interested in this one, not just because it's Mental Health Awareness Week, but because I suppose actually when I was younger, certainly the 90s, like Prozac was such a massive thing. It was more than just a drug. It became this kind of cultural marker. It was this sort of almost like a designer label, Prozac, Prozac. You'd hear the word everywhere. And I'm fascinated to hear a little bit more about why it was so important. But first of all, before we start, just tell us a little bit about what you do and who you are and why you're here. Sure, sure. Well, first off, thanks, Dallas, for having me on. I've been looking forward to this. So I uh, am a psychoanalytic therapist in the United States, in Florida. I am also a professor. I am instructor of psychiatry at the University of Central Florida College of Medicine and adjunct instructor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine, which is in Boston. And my main interests really are in the history of psychiatry and in particular, the history of mid 20th century American psychiatry. And clinically, I have an interest in working with severe and persistent mental disorders in psychotherapy. So a good percentage of my clinical practice is comprised of patients with schizophrenia, severe affective or mood disorders, 
and the like. But the history of psychopharmacology is an interest, even though I'm not a psychiatrist, I take an interest in the history of the use of medications in the treatment of psychiatric disorders. Well, that's really interesting. So, so pharmacology is your thing. But I'm interested, actually, before we get on to the origins of antidepressants, and particularly Prozac, I suppose, which is the one that became so famous, how did people like you treat depression before antidepressants were really you know, on the market? What's the sort of history of psychotherapy? Yeah. So, I mean, we can speak of the history of biological treatments before the advent of medications. And we can also speak of psychotherapeutic treatments before the advent of medications. In the 1950s and in the preceding decades, Freud really reigned supreme in American psychiatry and also, my understanding, also in British psychiatry. And, you know, Freud and his followers theorized that depression was anger turned inwards, that the individual had experienced some loss in life, loss of a loved person or a loved object, and internalized, the individual internalized that loss and directed the anger inwards toward the self, and that this was in some sort of the origin or the ideology of depression. And, you know, when we talk about other sort of biological therapies before the advent of medications, we have electroconvulsive therapy, which was discovered or developed in Italy in the 1930s by a psychiatrist named Serletti, Ugo Serletti. I always think of that scene in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest always, of where they throw thousands of volts between the temples. But I, I never knew whether that was actually a thing or that was just for artistic purposes. Yes, no, no, it was a thing and it remains a thing. You know, unfortunately, that is what most people think of when they think of electroconvulsive therapy is its depiction in movies, which are sensationalized sort of depictions of ECT. ECT is still around. It's still performed here in the U.S. as well as around the world. And it remains the single most effective treatment for refractory depression, depression that doesn't respond to any other therapies or any other forms of treatment. Unfortunately, some of the depictions in the media are unfortunate and really dismissive of the real effects that it can have in a positive way on individuals and their lives. But yes, so we had ECT, which was developed in the 30s, other forms of convulsive therapy, attempting to induce a seizure. Many years ago, it was recognized by a Portuguese neurologist that if a person with a seizure disorder who also had a mood disorder had a seizure, when they came back to consciousness, their mood was improved significantly, and they were no longer depressed. So psychiatrists in the early part of the 20th century began to look for ways to induce seizures in patients with mood disorders, with severe depressive disorders. What do you mean by seizures? Do you mean things like epilepsy? Yes, yes. So a seizure event, and that's what electroconvulsive therapy does, is it actually induces a seizure, a controlled seizure, and over a period of usually eight or 10 or 12 treatments, the depression resolves. What was the general, I mean, so back then, before the advent of sort of antidepressants as we know them, what was the kind of general perception of depression and mental illness? Was it very sort of stigmatized? I mean, it's something obviously, you know, thankfully, we're much more open and we talk about a lot now. But back then, when it was Freudian analysis or electroshock therapy, what was the feeling? Yeah, so I mean, certainly things are much less stigmatized today than they were 100 years ago. And it really depends on the doctor who was treating the patient. We had for many, many decades, a real split between 
those who took a more psychological approach to depression and those who took a more hard-lined biological approach to depressive illness. And so, you know, and I'll get into this when we speak about the development of the antidepressant drugs and how there was really a split in American psychiatry between those who were Freudian-minded, the psychoanalysts, and those who took a more biological approach. So it was mixed. I think the approach to depression throughout history has been one that has vacillated between sort of moral judgments, religious explanations, biomedical explanations, and psychological explanations. And what is the reason? I mean, I suppose if you break your leg, you can see you've got a broken leg. But something like depression, certainly in my experience, it's such an amorphous term and it can mean so many different things from things like schizophrenia to mood swings to PTSD to all kinds of things. Is it still quite a hard term to pin down? It is. I think you're hitting on an important point here. I think depression historically used to mean something very different from what it means today. The classic term in psychiatry for patients with what we now call severe or chronic depressions was melancholia. And melancholia was a diagnostic concept. These were the most profound and severely depressed individuals, patients who resided in the state asylums and in the hospitals of yesteryear. And really, I think the widespread adoption of antidepressant therapies, as well as the rise in psychoanalytic therapies, really caused a watering down of the concept of depression to now where, you know, we consider individuals with mild depressions and mild to moderate depressions as having the same illness as someone who used to be termed melancholic or having melancholia. So we have a diagnostic system in the DSM that really combines very mild, transient, and perhaps exogenous, meaning being caused by some external factor in the patient's life, combining this type of depression and calling it the same thing as melancholia, which I think is a real problem, actually. I advocate for the re-inclusion of melancholia as a diagnostic concept. I think it would help clarify things and really differentiate those with severe profound depressions from those with milder sort of depressions that seem more related to life circumstance. I was going to ask you before we get on to the pharmacology side of things, events that happen in people's lives, which obviously cause stress and whatever, as opposed to something else. <laughs> I don't know. It seems they do get very much sort of intertwined, you know, as two different things. And presumably one can have both as well. Yes, yes. So, you know, the model that is taught in American psychiatry and really around the world is the biopsychosocial model. This was pioneered by a guy named George Engel in the 80s, the 1980s, but really has its roots in Adolf Meyer's work in the early part of the 20th century. He advocated for a psychobiological approach, basically the idea that in any given mental disorder, there are biological factors at play, there are social factors at play, and there are psychological factors at play, and that the psychology and the biology are really two different ways of looking at the same phenomenon. And that the things that happen in our lives, negative life events can have an impact on our biology. And our biology can have an impact on the way that we respond and the way that we look at life events. So everything's sort of intertwined. We cannot really remove the psychology from the biology or vice versa. So it's a multi sort of dimensional approach. And I think it's the best approach that we have, the biopsychosocial model. Okay, great. Well, listen, let's move on. Let's talk about antidepressants, even before we get on to Prozac, because obviously I think there were, I say obviously, like I know what I'm talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about. Presumably there were types of medication before Prozac came along. But what are antidepressants? Like, What do they do? 
The term antidepressant really refers to various different classes pharmacologically of drugs. And the main classes are the SSRIs, and Prozac was the first SSRI to hit the market in 1988. So SSRI, that's an important word for us. So what does SSRI mean? Yes, that stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor, basically referring to the mechanism of action. These drugs sort of block the excessive reuptake of serotonin in the brain. And serotonin is a neurotransmitter or a chemical in the brain that is implicated in mood disorders. So we have the SSRIs, the SNRIs, which were developed later. The first SNRI, I believe, was venlafaxine or Effexor. That came on the market in 1997. But you're asking about drugs before the advent of Prozac. And really, there were two main classes. We have the MAOI drugs. That's monoamine oxidase inhibitor drugs. And then the tricyclic antidepressants. And these drugs were developed in the 1950s. And they were developed really around the same time. And both of them carried some problems in terms of side effects. And, you know, so the first MAOI drug was a drug called Marzalid, and that was developed under the research team of Dr. Nathan Klein in New York State. The MAOIs really fell out of favor largely because of their dietary restrictions. Patients who were treated with MAOIs could not eat any foods or beverages containing the chemical tyramine. And Tyramine is found in lots of different foods, in wines and cheeses and home-brewed beers. I thought you were going to say they couldn't eat anything that began with the letter T. So no toasts. No. <laughs> so no toast. Okay. Well, there yeah. you go. There's a, that's not going to work if you can't eat cheese, cheese and wine. Oh, and exactly. Yeah. Crumbs. That's enough. <laughs> yeah, that, that's enough to make someone depressed, right? Cheese or depression? I know what I'll take. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the MAOIs are rarely used today, if at all. I've rarely seen them prescribed. But the tricyclic drugs, which were developed in the 50s, are still used. And the first drug of this kind was a drug called amipramine. Amipramine was developed by a psychiatrist in Switzerland, Roland Kuhn. And the story is actually a fascinating one. So the pharmaceutical company that Kuhn was working for was a company called Geigy, and they were looking for a drug to compete with Thorazine or Chlorpromazine, which had recently been developed for schizophrenia and was making lots of money for the pharmaceutical company. So Geigy was looking for a drug to compete on the market with Thorazine. Kuhn really never had much of an interest in psychotic disorders. He was always more interested in mood disorders. So he had this compound that he found was really ineffective for psychosis or schizophrenia, but he began to use it behind the pharmaceutical company's back and use it with patients with depression. And sure enough, found that it was an effective antidepressant agent. And the pharmaceutical company was not happy about the research. So long story short, Geigy eventually releases amipramine reluctantly. You know, they're more interested in finding something to compete with Thorazine. And sure enough, Dr. Kuhn had found a drug that became really the gold standard in the treatment of depression for 30 or 40 years, a massive bestseller. Amipramine was really the gold standard in depression treatment before the advent of the SSRIs was used up until the 80s as a comparison drug yeah in research studies I'm always amazed about how doctors discover drugs because I don't I've no idea how it works I'm just I just imagine them sort of pottering around in the laboratory and just like pouring oh well let's try that and see what happens and so these MAIOs if that's right MAIOs and tricyclics am I pronouncing them right yes are they just ways of producing more serotonin in the brain. Is that the sort of the biochemistry that's happening? 
Well, so certainly serotonin is implicated. These older drugs had slightly different types of mechanisms of action versus the SSRIs, but they work on the monoamine neurotransmitters. And this really led to the development of the later drugs like the SSRIs and the SNRIs, which honed in on certain neurotransmitters more specifically. But to your point, though, many of the major discoveries in the history of psychiatry have been serendipitous. They've been accidental. You look at the history of lithium, which is one of my favorite drugs to talk about. It was just discovered serendipitously. This doctor in Australia thought that bipolar illness had something to do with uric acid and tried to find a compound to neutralize the uric acid. He picked lithium off the periodic table of the elements. Bipolar has nothing to do with uric acid, but lithium has stuck around for 70 years as the gold standard in the treatment of manic depression. So, yeah. I can imagine him with a kind of periodic table stuck in his wall and just sort of throwing a dart in it, seeing where it lands. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, lithium, that's the other famous one. I always think of the Nirvana song, Lithium. So where does lithium um, fit into this? Yeah, lithium has a fascinating history. Lithium is not an antidepressant per se. It's more of a mood stabilizing, quote unquote, mood stabilizing drug. It's used for manic depressive illness or bipolar disorder. But lithium is also effective in the treatment of depression as both an adjunctive agent, meaning a drug that you use in combination with an antidepressant, or as monotherapy, meaning the only drug. So lithium has uses beyond bipolar illness and can be effective in major depressive disorder as well. But the history of lithium is fascinating. I know we're here to talk about Prozac, but it took 22 years for lithium to become FDA approved in the United States because no pharmaceutical company wanted to touch it. You could never patent it. It's a naturally occurring element, a salt. So no one wanted to develop lithium and a lithium underground developed here in the U.S. with psychiatrists prescribing it without FDA approval. And still to this day, 70 years later, here in 2020, Lithium remains the single most effective agent what we have in psychiatry, the single most effective drug there is. And it's not prescribed simply because drug companies aren't making profits out of it. So why can't we just take lithium? (laughs) Well, some psychiatrists actually advocate for adding lithium to the drinking water. There's been interesting epidemiological research about lithium in in the water supply. And in places where there's higher trace amounts of lithium, you see lower rates of suicide, lower rates of psychiatric hospitalization and the like. Lithium also carries some side effects as well that make it unappealing to some prescribers. But yes, has a fascinating history. Lithium Underground also sounds like a band, like a sort of post-punk kind of (laughs) (laughs) half grunge, half New York post-punk. Anyway, okay. well, actually, well, you say, you know, serendipity and the invention of drugs and the development of drugs. We see that across the spectrum of innovation and invention. And in a way, this podcast is very much about that, looking at those moments of those sort of eureka moments or moments of serendipity. So let's talk about SSRIs, which is the kind of, I suppose, revolutionary drug. So what are SSRIs? When were they invented? And why did they change the landscape of psychiatry? SSRI drugs first came on the market in the late 1980s and became very popular in the 1990s and remain quite popular today. They are drugs that target serotonin, although they also work on other neurotransmitters, but target this neurotransmitter or chemical called serotonin, which is implicated in mood disorders. Since the 1960s, we've believed that serotonin and related neurotransmitters have something to do with human mood. And SSRIs work by essentially allowing more serotonin to be present in the synapse between two nerve cells in the brain. 
it's a bit more complicated than that. But in a nutshell, sort of that's what these drugs do. SSRIs were a real game changer in the treatment of depression and not only depression, though. A lot of people don't realize that SSRI drugs or antidepressant drugs, quote unquote, are used for a variety of conditions in psychiatry. At higher doses, they're used to treat obsessive compulsive disorder. They're also used to treat anxiety disorders and panic disorder at times used to treat sexual dysfunctions. So the story of SSRIs really is not just about depression. It's about a range of different psychiatric disorders. But what's really of interest to me is the shift culturally and the shift at a broader sort of social level. And then also the consequent beliefs about the nature of mental disorder that followed the advent and the discovery of the SSRIs. Because up until the discovery of the SSRIs, Although you had certainly biological psychiatrists, for the most part, the real shift toward a biological psychiatry developed in the aftermath of the development of the SSRI drugs in the 90s. In the 90s, here in the U.S., we had what was called the decade of the brain. And it was really a decade of antidepressants as well. And was Prozac the first SSRI? And what's the actual chemical in it? Like it's fluoro something. I forget what it's called. Fluoro. Fluoxetine. Fluoxetine is the generic name. So that's it. And how is it discovered? Like who came up with it and thought, okay, this is going to work? Yeah, it was discovered by an Eli Lilly biochemist named David Wong. And Wong had been interested since the 70s in developing this type of drug. And he was working with drug company Eli Lilly. And Wong and his colleagues were, you know, familiar with some of the European research that was implicating serotonin in mood regulation. And he encouraged his research team there to develop or synthesize chemicals that might selectively inhibit the reuptake of serotonin. And much of this work began in the early 1970s. So from the start of the research until the release of Prozac was a couple of decades, really. It was 15 or so years until his research actually came to fruition with an actual medication. He synthesized fluoxetine in 1975. In 1983, there was a Wall Street Journal article that was published that quoted an Eli Lilly spokesperson who reported that fluoxetine was not expected to be a major hit. But the spokesperson said that stockholders need not be concerned. The company would still make money with their new Elizabeth Arden cosmetics line. So there was not a whole lot of hope that Prozac was going to be, you know, a hit, a game changer. And sure enough, it became the best selling drug of all time in psychiatry. And we'll be back after the short break. History tells us that in 1455, the royal houses of Lancaster and York went to war, beginning a 30-year dynastic struggle for the throne that would change the course of English history forever. It became known as the Wars of the Roses. At this time, the Wars of the Roses are well underway. There's so much uncertainty throughout the country and who's going to come through all of this. This month, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out all the answers to your burning questions. People have just assumed the Bullfords were bad. But when was this scribbled in? It's effectively an act of graffiti on a parliamentary roll. Who were the key players? What were the critical battles and switches of allegiance? Was it ever really a case of good and bad? Join me, Matt Lewis, on the Gone Medieval podcast from History Hit every Saturday for brand new episodes.
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, tell us the name Prozac. Prozac became such a massive thing. Presumably as a branding exercise. Yes. It was phenomenal. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, one of the things that really has fascinated me is how drug companies actually name their drugs. You know, and I used to get surveys from pharmaceutical companies about what should we call our new drug. You know, there's other drugs similar. You know, Prozac has that very positive sort of sounding name. Yeah, exactly. It's going to kind of get up and go kind of vibe to it. Yes, Effects are effective, right? Effects are is going to be <laughs> yeah. effective. Yeah. Well, butrin, yeah. another antidepressant, feeling well, right? Yes. And there's other examples of this. <laughs> when I grow up, I want to be a drug namer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not a bad gig. But yeah, the naming of drugs has always fascinated me. Okay, so tell us, so Prozac goes on the market. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the sort of benefit of Prozac is it had the effects of the other earlier drugs, but also didn't have the quite the same bad side effects. So suddenly you had something that was very, very safe and obviously kind of worked. But suddenly everyone was talking about it. How did it change the landscape in treating mental health disorders? Yeah, it's a great question. The SSRIs are generally speaking, well tolerated drugs that do have side effects, and they do have withdrawal effects. But these side effects and withdrawal effects are generally speaking, considered mild. So I think the advent of the SSRIs really shifted the way doctors prescribed antidepressants. When we had the MAOIs and the tricyclics, I think that doctors were a bit more hesitant to prescribe these drugs to mildly depressed patients because of, say, the cardiovascular risks associated with some of the tricyclics, like amipramine and amitriptyline. With the SSRIs, which were considered to be safer drugs carrying similar or greater efficacy, I think doctors became a little bit more liberal with their prescription of antidepressants. And patients who used to be referred for psychotherapy, for talk therapy or counseling, were now being prescribed antidepressants for milder forms of depressive illness. 
And I think that had something to do with the popularity of these drugs. You know, the vast majority of prescriptions for antidepressants, by the way, here in the U.S., and it may be similar in the U.K., the vast majority of prescriptions are written by primary care doctors or family doctors, not by psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. And very often, primary care docs don't have a whole lot of time to spend with their patients. They're crunched for time. They may have very brief evaluations, and they may not be very skilled or experienced in the evaluation of mood disorders, and they will turn to the prescription pad pretty quickly. And I think that that fueled what a lot of people see as the overprescription of antidepressants in the 90s, which probably carries through to today. Yeah, I mean, it does seem that we've seen as the kind of the happy pill, you know, you would take Prozac and you'd be happy. And even if you weren't unwell, it was a way of making you even better and more productive and more sociable and all these sorts of things. Yes, there was a book that was published by a psychiatrist named Peter Kramer, who was at Brown University in Rhode Island here in the States, that it was titled Listening to Prozac. And one of the sort of questions he asks in the book is, If a patient comes in and they're not depressed, but they want personality change, they want to be able to climb the corporate ladder, they want to be able to be more outgoing. If they're shy, for instance, they want to be more outgoing. And we know that a drug like Prozac might help them do that. One, is it ethical to prescribe the drug to a patient like that who's seeking something other than treatment for depression? So it's not about getting well, it's about getting better. Yes, exactly. And then two, you know, should we do that? Is it ethical? And then should we? And and he termed this sort of cosmetic psychopharmacology, you know, the use of psychopharmacological drugs for cosmetic benefit. Yes. It's a really interesting idea. And I've heard Peter Kramer talk about that idea of actually, this is more than just getting people well. This is in a way, in the same way that cosmetic surgery will change you, even though you're not ill or anything. It's because you want to change the way you look. This does a similar thing. It's a really interesting... I'd never really thought about it like that. Cosmetic psycho... What was it? Cosmetic psychopharmacology. Crikey. Yes. 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 (laughs) And his book was a bestseller. It's a good read. And it seemed that everybody who was everybody was taking Prozac and sort of talking about it as well. It wasn't anything that you hid away. It seemed to be a bit of a badge of honour that you were taking Prozac. It had a kind of chic about it. It was like a designer label in a way. Yeah. Alan Francis, who's an American psychiatrist, he talks about how in the 90s, you know, at cocktail parties, before the advent of Prozac, you would be talking about, you know, your psychoanalytic session and what your analyst said to you. And then in the 90s, it became, you know, what drug you're taking and the like. So, okay, that's the sort of cultural shift with with Prozac. From your point of view as a doctor, did it have benefits? Is it the wonder drug that everyone thought it was in the late 80s and 90s? It's a really great question. I think my answer is going to be mixed here. I think in some respects, antidepressants of this kind, the SSRIs, have helped a great number of people. At the same time, I think that the drugs have caused a cultural shift in the way that we conceptualize mental disorder that may be unhelpful and may have a negative effect. So there's been a lot of talk in recent years, the past decade or so, about antidepressants and the placebo effect. Are they really any better than a sugar pill. And Irving Kirsch here in the US has written a lot about this sort of thing, has done meta-analyses and the like. Well, you know, one thing that we know is that the most severely, profoundly depressed patients respond very well to antidepressant therapy, the medication. But these patients are typically excluded from the research studies because it would be deemed unethical to prescribe this type of patient who may be on the verge of suicide, a placebo. So you cannot randomly assign a severely depressed individual to a placebo group. 
And thus, these patients, which we see in clinical practice and we know get better on antidepressant medications, are not included in the research studies. And this is a point that I think is very important and most people miss when they're talking about antidepressants and the placebo effect. Now, for milder depressions, I am not entirely sure that the drugs are any better than placebo. But for this severe form of depression, I think the drugs have been an immense help for these patients. You must have, certainly in the UK, the last few years, we've been talking about mental health so much more than we ever had. It's become much less stigmatized. We're much more open about it. And obviously, there's lots of reasons why that is. Not least, we have things like social media. So we're just talking about everything more. But has drugs like Prozac and Citalopram and Sertraline and all these sort of modern drugs, have they helped create that sense that it's easier to talk about mental illness, less stigmatized anyway, and more people are getting help? I think in a way they have. And I think this has something in part to do with how these drugs shaped our conceptualization of what mental disorders are. In the aftermath of the development of the SSRIs, you have this real sense that mental disorders are brain diseases, that they are really no different than diabetes or cancer or any other physical type of problem. And I don't necessarily see mental disorders in this way. I think the brain is certainly implicated. And I'd like to share a quote with you that I think is really powerful. And it's a quote from a paper by Schildkraut and Keedy, very early researchers on antidepressant drugs in the 1960s. And that really sort of gets to this idea that maybe mental disorders are not brain diseases in the same way that Parkinson's disease is a brain disease. And they're writing here in 1967, it should be emphasized that the demonstration of a neurotransmitter abnormality would not necessarily imply a genetic or constitutional rather than an environmental or psychological etiology of depression. It is equally conceivable that early experiences of the infant or child may cause enduring biochemical changes, and that these may predispose some individuals to depressions in adulthood. In any comprehensive formulation of the physiology of affective state or mood state, will have to include many other concomitant biochemical, physiological, and psychological factors. I think this was a word of warning from Schildkraut and Keedy that, you know, we cannot just assume that because these drugs work, that these problems or these disorders are just biological problems, that these are complex biopsychosocial problems. And we could be looking at a problem that runs in the opposite direction. There's something that has happened in the life of the person that has set their biology up to predispose them to depression. I see. That's really interesting. So things like SSRIs, they are not some silver bullet. They are not some magic fix-all for all kinds of depression. But certainly they may be part of a solution to fix a much more complex and nuanced set of issues that people face. Yes. My take is that virtually anyone on an SSRI for depression should also be in psychotherapy. But what you saw is, you know, sort of people dropping out of therapy in the 90s and in the early 2000s in favor of just taking the medication. You certainly can't I'm not blaming the patients here. I think the individuals are just sort of taking in what's going on in the broader environment. Crikey, I mean, getting an appointment with a therapist, certainly in the UK, is very, very difficult. And I think particularly after pandemic, we have had a massive rise in mental health issues and people seeking help for it. And it's been such a huge thing. And I'm sure it's very similar in the US as well. As you say, that quotation sums it up very nicely. You know, it's not just biology, it's a whole host of different factors. Where are we going to go with treatment for depression and 
mental illnesses now. I mean, I've heard people experimenting with psychoactive drugs like LSD as bringing those back as a form of therapy, all kinds of different things. Does Prozac still exist? Because we never really had Prozac in the UK or it was certainly branded under another label, I think. Maybe we did, but it certainly wasn't a popular drug as far as I know. And I think it's been rebranded in America as well now. So where do we go from here? Yeah, well, so Prozac is now, the generic name is used because it's off patent. So most people call it fluoxetine here, and that may be the case in the UK as well. So I think there's been a sense within the pharmaceutical industry that sort of the pipeline has dried up on new developments in psychiatric medications. There have not been any major discoveries of more conventional sort of psychiatric drugs in quite a few decades. Really, I think the last major breakthrough was the SNRI drugs in the late 90s. And that's more than, (laughs) it's 25 years ago. So, you know, I think there's a lot of excitement around the use of ketamine in the treatment of depression and the investigation of psychedelic drugs. Here in the US at Johns Hopkins University, there is a whole research institute devoted to the study of psychedelics. It's not an area of particular specialization or expertise for me, but I have a feeling that within the next decade or so, we're going to see a shift in that direction and that these drugs are going to be more commonly prescribed for depressive conditions. Maybe there'll be another one of these kind of serendipitous moments like we see all the time. I mean, I believe Viagra, which is obviously the kind of trendy, not Prozac drug, but again, That was a serendipitous thing, I think. Wasn't it meant for some sort of heart condition or something? And then it turned out to have other side effects, which are massively beneficial. I think it was. Someone made a lot of money out of that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's very similar to a drug that I take for my male pattern baldness, finasteride. (laughs) But uh, yeah, finasteride was originally a drug that was developed for, I believe, a urological problem. And they realized that when the patients started taking this drug, they started growing their hair back. And then it became marketed for male pattern baldness. So yeah. Lots of serendipity. Absolutely fascinating to talk to you. It's been really a real pleasure, Mark, to have you on and sort of clearing up some of these stories and some of these ideas. And I just want to say a huge thank you for stopping by the podcast. And what are you up to at the moment? Do you do a lot of public outreach stuff talking about this beyond being a clinician? Yeah, yeah, I write a bit. I have a blog on the history of psychiatry for the website Psychology Today. It's called From Freud to Fluoxetine. Yeah, there you go, which I've read. It was excellent. Yes, thank you. I also publish in Psychiatric Times, which is a U.S. publication that's available online. Uh, And, you know, most of my writing nowadays, I guess it's two-pronged. One is the psychotherapy of schizophrenia and psychotic illness, which is really my core clinical interest. And I also like history and trying to respond to some of the criticisms of psychiatry. Now, there's a lot to be critical of when it comes to psychiatry, but I think some of the criticism is quite unfair. Psychiatry as a whole does a lot of good for people. At points in time, it has a bit of a dark history. But on the whole, I think psychiatry does a great deal of good. I agree. Mark, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much, Dallas. Appreciate it. Thank you. So that is it. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Absolutely fascinating stuff. And if you did enjoy it, I should point out that last week's episode was all about the invention of a completely different kind of drug, but connected, I suppose. It was all about LSD, the uses of LSD, the development and the invention of LSD. Really, really interesting episode. Next week, I'm going to be talking about something completely different. I'm going to be talking about that classic invention, the bicycle, with the very brilliant Tim Harford, who I'm sure a lot of you will have come across. So look out for that. 
that. By the way, if you've got an invention or a story of an invention that you're interested in or want me to delve a bit deeper in or that you know and that you think is really interesting, get in touch with me and I will put it onto the list. Don't forget to subscribe and like, and I will see you soon. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.